You may not know the game Kerplunk. So the way it works is you pull out supports one by one and until the marbles fall and you win or lose the game. Because there, there's not enough there by way of props and supports to hold up the structure. The comedian Jack D recently had a routine where he spoke about how Michael O'Leary was playing kerplunk with passenger safety on Ryanair, with plans being suggested to have one pilot, not two, to take out the seats and make people stand, to use just enough fuel to complete the flight, all to reduce costs, one by one the hitherto sacred safety margins being taken away until one day, who knows, kerplunk. It was just a bit of fun, but the image was powerful. Uh, One prop after another removed until the whole thing implodes kerplunk. The former Bishop of Edinburgh, Richard Holloway's book, Leaving Alexandria, describes how that sort of thing happened to him with the faith. Bit by bit taken away, support after support removed, until it was pretty much kerplunk. Not quite enough still in place to keep him in the game not the traditional familiar game at any rate over the years I suppose I've been playing a bit of kerplunk with the faith myself becoming less and less attached to old familiar assumptions and presumptions letting go of this, choosing not to fuss about that adjusting perspectives on this redefining priorities on that Which version of the Bible should we use? I'm not much bothered. Presbyterian or Methodist or Episcopalian form of church government? Well, I'm not going to the stake over that. Communion once a day, once a week, once a month, twice a year, four times a year? I know what I like, but I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. Common cup or separate glasses? Well, I know what I like and would prefer, but it's hardly of the essence. What shape or style of church building? Whether or not to wear robes? Bare and spare church interior? Or stained glass and candles and baroque splendour everywhere? Well, I know what I would choose left to myself, but I'm not going to be a martyr on that matter. Debts or transgressions? Really? Who cares? Infant baptism or believer's baptism? Well, I made a choice about that years ago and I know why, but I'm not sure it's worth fighting about. In fact, I'm sure it's not worth fighting about. General Assembly or General Synod? Really, what of it? Kneeling or standing or sitting to pray? Not a matter of great substance. Visiting the underground churches in Rome, the catacombs, reminds you of how little we need, really, to be a church, to do church. Some bread and wine, a Bible and some water, all you need. All the rest is largely optional. Ancient arguments, accidents and accretions of history. Veneration of the saints, well, we all do a bit of that, and if we don't, maybe we should. Confession, Well, we all do a bit of that, just some do it differently. Organs and choirs, or praise bands and drums. Priests or ministers, married or celibate, whatever. 
And when we enter that arcane and troublesome world of doctrines and theology, there are plenty of options out there. The Bible, absolute word for word spoken by God to the writers, like Muslims believe the Quran was, or more, you know, inspired, or maybe just sacred. Rule of faith, there is a wide spectrum of views. Some people have no problem with the doctrine of the virgin birth. For others, it's a bit of a tricky one. But is it at the centre of everything? Is it the most important bit of the gospel? Ways of understanding creation are sprinkled through the church. Attitudes to heaven and hell vary with interpretations of each. Ways of understanding the glorious drama of salvation. Views on ethical issues... Opinions on divorce, abortion, wealth, war, sexuality, all up, for, all up for grabs, all up for grabs. Different people taking different stances on all of this. People cherry-picking the verses that suit their arguments and contorting their way around the ones that don't. We're all at it, whether we admit it or not. We may not find it comfortable to live with, but the reality is... Everything can't be equally important. Everything can't be at the centre. Some stuff is surely at the edges, peripheral. Talking with new communicants is a great discipline. As you see, their largely unchurched eyes glaze over when they encounter the brash certainty with which the church sometimes seems to speak about things it can hardly be sure about. Things about God and the universe and the purpose of all things, about which we should allow ourselves to show a little humility, perhaps. So what, if anything, is of the essence? What is non-negotiable? What is at the core? I think we'd have to recognise that Easter is, at the core, non-negotiable, because Without it, there there is nothing. No church, no good news, no hope. St Paul could hardly be more specific, direct and clear. He says in 1 Corinthians, If Christ be not raised, we are of all men most to be pitied. If Christ be not raised, then your faith is in vain and you are still lost in your sins. If Christ has not been raised from death, we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. Come off the fence there, Paul, and tell us what you really think. Indisputably at the centre, definitely of the essence, core belief. But how can we believe it? And what does it mean to believe it when we weren't there and we have no proof to which we can turn? And do we have to believe in something we can't really believe in just because it's something we're supposed to believe in? Well, as a start, at the very least, we can begin by allowing credibility to the logic that underpins faith in the resurrection. The biblical account puts it at the centre of everything. And for some people, that's all they need. It says it in the Bible, we believe the Bible, QED, done deal, no more questions. 
Jesus tells his followers to look out for it, for it is going to happen, though, like us, they find it hard to believe. In fact, they don't at first. A silly tale, they call it. So he says it will happen, and the New Testament tells us it did happen. And if that's the starting point for you, then who should knock that? And even if they try, you probably won't be deflected. But there are other elements to the logic of the Easter event. One would be the nature of Christ and the nature of God. Once we've accepted the reality of God, in one sense, it shouldn't surprise us that he does what he wants to do, can do what he wants to do. After bringing a universe into being, raising someone from death should be well within his grasp. And if Jesus is who he says he is, And if God indeed is God, speaking the last word with all the authority of his might and power, it's perfectly logical that he would choose to demonstrate his love and affirm his vindication of the life and ministry of Jesus by making very sure that no one was in any doubt, that no one could imagine for a moment that his love could ever be conquered or overwhelmed by the wickedness of men. Look, see and learn, says Easter morning. Look, see and learn, love will not be defeated. The life of Christ will not be ended by hatred and violence. How could it be so? God says yes to Jesus and all that he did and was and offers humanity. How could it be otherwise if God is to be God? There is also the perplexing dynamic of disciples transformed from cowards and failures to brave apostles and martyrs. Disciples who, when asked, who, when asked, explained their transformation in terms of one simple reality. Jesus, whom you crucified, God has raised to life. Not that they had a a radical rethink and suddenly saw the abstract worth of the teaching of their dead teacher, and this inspired their courage. It was not that faith in his message, though he lay dead and defeated, was sufficiently inspiring to bring them out from their hiding places into the marketplace, but that he met them in his risen power and restored them, revived their crushed spirits, and empowered them by his spirit to change the world. Somewhere in the mystery of that complete turnaround lies the declaration that he, the risen one, made the difference, convinced them by his utterly unexpected risen presence that his way was the way they should follow and his life the life they should live and his living truth the gospel they should preach. This seems to be their testimony and the change in them is pretty much inexplicable apart from that testimony – It's what they said happened. It's how it happened, they said. And the third dimension to the logic of the resurrection that makes faith in it reasonable and understandable is that peculiar miracle we call the Church of Jesus Christ. Across the world, living and serving and sustained by his power and in his name, countless Christians who find the Christ they speak with The guidance they seek from his spirit, a reality, only because of his living presence within the life of the church. We would not be here. 
The church would not exist if all it sought to do was keep alive the teachings of a dead rabbi. And men and women would not still today feel the call of that same Jesus to give their life to him, to follow his lead, to go where he sends them, were the resurrection only some fanciful construct of a sad and confused church looking for meaning in the death of its heroic but now discredited and severely dead leader. So there are two ways we find faith in the resurrection of Jesus. The integrity of the record and of those whose faith in the event rings true in their lives and service, and in the reality and mystery of our own faith, the journey we make now and the Lord who walks that journey with us. I feel very fortunate. I've grown up with the miracle of Easter and find nothing in it but wonder and delight and joy and thanksgiving. I was taught early on that the Gospels were called Gospels because they brought truth and good news, represented a trustworthy account of the experience of the first followers of Jesus, and that has stayed with me. The thought that God, if he wanted, could make a million more universes, so raising his son from death in a glorious declaration that his work was done and the world was saved never seemed too big a leap for me. God could cope with that challenge. And the amazing change in the disciples, the effectiveness of their message, and the tap of Christ on the shoulders of men and women across the world in that wonderful story we call the church, that package always seemed to me to make sense. But you might still be struggling with this. You might be wondering, can I be a Christian even though I find it hard to believe in the resurrection? Do I accept it in some way that doesn't require me really to believe in it? Am I supposed to contort my mind in order to contain this extraordinary impossibility and believe in it? On the one hand, rationality tells us people do not rise from the dead. On the other hand, 2,000 years of Christianity puts that impossibility at the very heart of its life. What is a modern man or woman to do with this and still have their intellectual integrity intact? We can believe the record and agree that this is what they said happened, so it must have happened, and it's an amazing miracle, and I admit the possibility of amazing miracles. I admit the possibility of amazing miracles. We can engage with the mysterious birth and ongoing life of the church and agree that really hard though it is to understand there is no satisfactory other reason for its continued existence and ongoing life of service in the world than that the living Christ makes his presence felt among his people as he has done since that first Easter day. And as we pray and worship and live his way, we will know his presence in his heart, at the very core of our being, guiding, challenging, forgiving, healing, inspiring and upholding us, so that we understand that our faith is not in some dusty book full of ancient wisdom. Our spiritual life is not centred around some rules and regulations that determine how we deal with our experience, but that the living Lord is the beating heart and the living breath of our spiritual life, and we serve a living Saviour. Encounter him in the needs of others, in the fellowship of his church, and when with bread and wine in our hands, 
we find his love in our heart, powerful, true and living. In the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.